0: In this episode of KubeFM, got a chance to speak to Alex, who's a DevOps manager, and he had the experience of onboarding some DevOps engineers, and in the process, noticed something was going wrong, which led to the process of building a webhook, which then took them all the way as far down as the kernel itself. Now, in order to unpack that process, we'll be hearing from Alex about all the things that went into troubleshooting, making corrections in order to build best practices. That being said, we also would like to say thanks to our sponsor, k 8s which is helping engineers all over the world troubleshoot the journey towards expertise when it comes to Kubernetes. The courses are 60% practical, 40% theoretical, very much hands-on instructor-led courses that can be either done in person or remotely from the privacy and comfort of your home. You will have access to all the material for the rest of your life so you can squeeze all that wonderful Kubernetes knowledge and make the most of it. So if you want to know more, check out learnkates.io and see if it's something that can help you level up in your Kubernetes career and accelerate your journey. But now, let's get into the episode with Alex. All right, Alex, if you had to install three new tools on a brand new Kubernetes cluster, which tools would they
1: be? All right, yeah, I've seen these coming. Well, the one thing that, that we use a lot for managing many Kubernetes clusters is Flux and uh, we started adopting it when it was flux one now there is a flux two and we're in a migration stage uh we even baked it inside of our terraform module that we use for kubernetes provisioning so that would be my tool number one for infrastructure is approach for kubernetes management prometheus stack i guess that would be number two because we need to know what's going on inside the cluster and um, the tool number three is kivirno that's something we, that we adopted recently uh, as a replacement for port security policies. because uh, we also want our Kubernetes cluster to be insecure.
0: Now I have to ask the devil's advocate question. Why not Argo? Why not um, OpenTelemetry? Tele, open and why not OPA?
1: Very good question. So Argo and um, Flux. So we basically we did evaluation both of the tools and we try to onboard the one that is best fit for us when argus seems to be more application-centric approach when flux is more infrastructure in a way that so basically the way we, we do our kubernetes clusters and we are we are having another big article coming so soon on on that subject is that we have a repository with our infrastructure pieces that would be your default network policies um that are unique for us that that, that we know that we should have there um there would be some the templated applications, for instance. I don't know if we have Postgres that we, we prepare in a certain way, we want that to be the same across the organization. So we install this Helm chart with predefined values from what this one aspect this this one centralized place. And we have this repository where you can basically almost drag and drop the tools and the stuff that you want to install to your cluster and also you can change them in one place that would be propagated to all your clusters we have tens of kubernetes clusters inside altnr so that helps us to manage the infrastructure aspect then when it comes to application aspect the way we deliver application is we found it more convenient using ci cd systems so basically the the application is installed via helm from our ci cd system it doesn't mean that we wouldn't onboard our going future, but so far there was no strong need in this um, area. Open telemetry. I don't think that it is a, that this is the choice you need to make. Either one or the other. It comes perfectly together with Prometheus and Open Telemetry and Jagger and all these observability tools. The application has to be ready as well. I mean, that's uh, it is becoming a, cloud, a part of cloud native standard. But what is now I think this is what monitoring is slowly transforming into if you have very good observability you basically don't really need to have a monitoring as a standalone separate layer that comes together with a very good observability and um, open telemetry is a great tool for that but it also takes the application to support of all this uh, tracing headers and and be, be able to do that. And what was the third one you mentioned? Yeah,
0: I don't know, very good answer so far. Uh, so yeah, you chose Kyverno and not OPA, Open Policy Agent.
1: That's actually, I don't know why, because uh, that wasn't the choice I made personally. That was something that I trusted to the one of our senior tech leads. And I know that he did do the analysis of why we chose this product or that product. And together with the security team, Kyverno was the best fit. But I can't say why. Oh, that's okay. We'll bring
0: him on for in a future podcast. <laughs> no worries. Um, so now, just to get a little bit more about your background, you know who you are. Tell us a little. Tell me a little bit more about you know who you are, where where you're based, and the kind of work that you're doing.
1: Yeah, originally I'm from Siberia, from Russia, and I started my career in technical support. And um, it was a very interesting product um, that would that helps people manage their hosting. And since hosting can lose a lot of parts, such as DNS, mail servers, databases, uh, patching the XPHP PHP and all like all, all of this. I didn't only have to deal with the product itself, but there's it a bunch of open source tools. And I love troubleshooting, uh, like deeply. Um, maybe partially because it gives you a quick endorphin. You found the problem, you solved it, and uh, you're happy, rather than having a project that might last a few months. So that's where I started my career. And then I moved to Malta, and that's where I'm located nowadays. Malta is a little island um, in the Mediterranean. Because not many people know where it is. It's close to Sicily. And, uh, and that's where I am uh, right now. I am driving a team of DevOps engineers. Uh, I started as a second DevOps engineer in the whole company, and now we grew uh, to having 15 people under my supervision. So that's quite a challenge now.
0: Yeah, sounds like it. And what was it like, you know, for you getting into cloud native, starting with Kubernetes? When did that happen? And what were the circumstances that led to that?
1: All right. Yeah, that's a very good question. So basically, I joined the company where it was like in sort of a post-startup stage. It was already about 60 people, it was financially stable, and there was a product that was already generating money based on .NET standard running on Windows VMs, IIS, and I came to build the whole automation around it. And being a... Linux engineer um, to the core of my nature, running a bunch of Windows servers was not something I expected to do. But that's where I learned Ansible basic DevOps approach. And and that was the first iteration. And meanwhile, while we were doing this automation bringing the current product that was in production up to their modern standards, uh, Dev team redeveloped the whole product uh, on .NET Core and thanks Microsoft adopting the .NET Core that can run in Linux, that's when we realized we can actually try to containerize and uh, put the application to Kubernetes. So there was was that, a few products in parallel, and uh, we started big already, like, like from the day one. So the first installation of our support book we had was already based on three different Kubernetes clusters. The reason is because the infrastructure is hybrid, so we have some part running on the VMs in our in our on on our servers in our data center and the other part we utilize google uh, presence basically all around the world so we have a few kubernetes clusters dedicated to the front end and caching database applications hosted in google
0: and you know it's an ecosystem that moves quite quickly how do you stay up to date with you know kubernetes
1: cloud native technologies well the one one part is like being open-minded, travel, go to Kubernetes conferences, and finally traveling next year to Kubicon in Paris. And I've been to a couple of smaller ones in Germany. Um, And that's how you get to know about all the new technologies, reading Medium and other uh, internet sources. That's another thing. And I guess being curious, that's the key point. So that's one thing you know about the new technology and one thing when you just can't sleep unless you go and try it.
0: Really really like that, like you said, that is that you know we've recorded quite a few episodes, but really emphasizing that part about mentality, uh, I think is a great one. With that in mind, if you could go back you know to when you started using Kubernetes, is there any advice that you would give to your previous self you know in terms of things that would be good to focus on, you know in which order you need to learn things, Anything that you would share with your previous self when you were first starting out with Kubernetes?
1: Well, the best way to learn something is to try. I still believe that. So reading and watching videos and getting to understand this whole concept is a very good thing, but uh, going there and trying it on dev stage and on production eventually is what um, makes you really feel the product, not just understand the theory behind it. And I guess don't be afraid and just go and try it. That's um, that's advice I would give. Like that, to, you know, the to only me, fear the big it... barrier was into getting into containers from From being a sysadmin SSH guy who likes to have root and manage VMs, now container that you can't really log in is that easy, whatever you change gets reverted as soon as you restarted and all this stuff, that was a new world for me at the beginning. And, And I think it's...
0: Like you said, the the importance of being open minded and and willing to try stuff is is a really valuable advice that uh, a lot of people can benefit from. As we're in an industry that moves so quickly, what you're doing today will probably change in you know in a few years time. So being open to that change, with that in mind, you know is with your role as a as a DevOps manager. One of the things that a lot of people struggle with when they get into a management role is having to leave aside the technical aspects. Do you find that you still have time to code or are you spending most of your time validating people's holiday requests or, or you know, that they want a new laptop or an SSD? Do you still have time to, to focus on the technical side and, and code?
1: Well, luckily, my team has very, very high technical standards requirements to be in. So it, I just can't really let it go because one, two years past and I will be out of game. So I have to stay up to up to date with all the technologies and at least have an idea how it works. Try it somewhere, try to deploy it myself, or, not, or if if we have a critical time, being able to go on troubleshoot. So I'm trying to stay on the technical side as much as I can, and maybe that's also something that makes me not very good manager per se when it comes to managing people. But yes, I'm still. I'm still there. I'm still in the game, and I still do some technical stuff myself. What also helps me is having some uh, pet projects or side projects. For instance, recently everybody is talking about eBPF and um, evaluating that part, especially Cilium, especially after Google announced that Cilium is soon going to be the default uh, network um, network layer for the Kubernetes and Google. I enjoy that a lot.
0: And then, and like you said, a f- fantastic way to stay up to date is to put those things into practice in whether it's a sandbox environment or a personal project in, you know, you you going back to the part about management, something that's both technical, but also has to deal with managing people is is onboarding. And so onboarding is very often not done well. And as a result is very costly because of not investing the time and energy uh, in in making sure that people know what they need to know, that they're focusing on the right things. They're not focusing on things that aren't of their concern. What's the process that you use for onboarding a developer?
1: So, yeah, that's something that we are still uh, developing and um, improving from, from every, with every new engineer, because every new engineer that hasn't, hasn't seen our, our stuff for a long time, he always finds the things that can be done better. So I always very open to the feedback of, of, of newbies for the first one or two months. And another good practice that I've always had in my previous companies and all, all the places I worked before is before you go and support something or before you go and build something, uh, like help build something what's already there, try to do it in your sandbox from scratch. So that's like, as I said, hands-on experience is the best way to understand how it works. We'll give you also a lot of practices with the tools and um, and the standards that we use. And our product on its own is not um, not a simple one um it has more than 100 different microservices different data streams a lot of external dependencies so the onboarding process takes about six months for an engineer to feel comfortable but the first the, the very first onboarding that we do we, we do it like in the sandbox with a little like a small project that he has to follow the guidelines and build it from scratch so basically use terraform to deploy a cluster ansible to Um, to install kubernetes on top of it and then um, helm like create the pipeline build application in the helm chart so basically it gives a developer a chance to try all the tools that we use inside and um, being able to troubleshoot any issues he can encounter during this process So when he comes to the to the real battlefield he already um, armed and has has an idea where to go and what to look for
0: I like that. And so and you talked about some of the tools, but you know, if they're deploying locally or on the remote cluster, what are the tools that are installed that are, that are necessary to understand the incidents that they're facing? Yes. What are they, what are they getting hands-on experience with when it comes to that?
1: Uh, the first one they get is basically um, an endpoint to vSphere where they can go and deploy VMs uh, using our Terraform module. So that would be them using Terraform. Then Terraform invokes KubeSpray under the hood to install Kubernetes on top of that. Uh, ideally, they also pre-configure the Flux repository. So as soon as the cluster is there, Flux is installed and all the system components pulled and installed on the cluster. That often fails as well if you pre-configure it incorrectly or specify the incorrect values. So that's another layer of fun and troubleshooting. So when the cluster is up and running, the next stage would be Uh, taking an application and putting it in Docker and creating a Helm chart for that. Helm chart is a separate story. We also use uh, templates for templates, basically. So we have a centralized template repository for all Helm uh, primitives, like deployment, service, ingress. And then we reuse them across many charts. We still can redefine each of the primitives if it's required, but in most cases, it is not. So learning how that is it inside the company is also another thing they do, and then they go to CI/CD system and try to try to build their application using our CI/CD templates and then make a deployment. So as soon as they see the hello world in the cluster they've just deployed, we can say that the very first stage of onboarding is complete. We want them to do their README and create documentation on all the steps how they've done them, and then there is a team review, uh, basically of the of the work that the engineer did. You
0: know this for. Depending on someone's level of experience, this could be somewhat challenging. Is this something that new team members are are completing? Like you said, the, in the six month period, what have you noticed there?
1: Well, that that task is for two weeks. Okay, <laughs> All
0: right. Um, So is it something that but the end? So they're completed just fine without any major major hiccups.
1: Uh, well, I guess we don't really take like completely newbies. From, we, we have we have a program when we take students from the university, and we don't expect them to do that on their onboarding process. That's actually part of their internship before we make a decision to hire them. Usually it takes them about two to three months to complete the same set of um, tasks. And that's where I help them explain in every step. Uh, We often often touch parts that are like cloud native, directly related, like what's a cloud native application? How you would manage your database migrations? Um, Would you use ORM or would you use like the manually written SQL queries? Why would you do that? when it's good, when it's bad. thing. So we, we do small things, but we try to look at them from the big enterprise perspective. Like you are now one engineer here, you did that. But if, you, if it was 10 of you, then you would have done the same thing in the same way because that's, that's how it's structured. Basically, that's what, that's what they do.
0: Oh, it sounds like a great model, and also that you're using them to to bounce ideas off. And it looks like you know from what you mentioned in the article that it helped you become aware of things that you weren't necessarily you know previously noticing. Can you tell us about that about the issue that you noticed and how it wasn't the usual mistake, perhaps, but something that was uh, somewhat more serious?
1: Yeah, so basically using Kubernetes and administrating Kubernetes, those are two different jobs. And um, I think it's true for most of the technologists As soon as they work, People don't really know how they work inside and how they're structured inside, unless you absolutely have to go and study that. For us, Kubernetes, uh, even though we run it on the VMs and we deploy it with kube spray, um, it tends to work most of the time. So that particular issue was there was a learning curve even for an exp- for experienced engineers. So basically what happened there was usually like the network troubleshooting things when somebody is timing out or so the connection is refused or somebody something is not listening on the right port that's that's quite often it's a very common issue i've seen it many times and i think i even have an algorithm in my mind how would you tackle this issue down step by step and um as i explained in the beginning of the article that's basically what we try to do uh first step to troubleshoot any issue is to try to reproduce it so for those who who read the article uh, or if you need a small reminder so basically the problem was with a with a web hook um it was a validation web hook that Kube API couldn't call and because it was part of the bootstrap in the cluster the the automation would fail on that step and that's where we try to travel through that so since it it was a test cluster if you think you do you would just remove all the network policies because like percent the of the time that's it's what causes the problem. But in this specific case, that did not help. And that's where I already was a little bit interested in the case. So after removing the network policies, the cube API was sealed timeout all in the webhook. But um, the locally webhook was available just fine. Next, my, basically my, my, my favorite tools for troubleshootings often comes to, it comes to um, TCP dump and uh, S-trace. And there is a um, there is a fantastic container called Netshoot that has all, all the things that you need for network troubleshooting, and that's how we started. So, basically, try to reproduce the issue. The webhook is working locally, but it's not working from API. Um, getting into the like the best way to like to mimic the whole path is basically call from the same container. But since the security practices, kube API server has nothing but the kube API binary in it. You can't really even log into this container. So what we did is we we added a sidecar to that container. It is a little bit different sidecar to the normal sidecars because the kube api server container is not a normal container so we had to change the the yaml manifest on the on the master node. And then we we, we faced the same the same behavior we couldn't really call um, the url from that container.
0: Yeah, one thing just what one thing just what we have here in the script in the in the notes is talking about the Metal LB um controller. If you want to talk about that at all in terms of the debugging process, how you realize and
1: confirm that that wasn't the issue. Yeah, right. Speaking a little bit about webhook and what, what was what was the hook webhook was about. It was it was a webhook for a LB uh, speaker. And we use Meta LB for the on-prem cluster as a in addition to our ingress, so that helps us to create um Internal load balancers without having to have an external load balancer providing this layer. I'm not going to explain how MetaLB works, but I think it's a pretty cool tool for use cases like ours. But in order to install that, there is a webhook that we need to call. So, and that's um that. What was failing? Um, you know, there are two types of webhooks: validating and mutating. Uh, there was a validation webhook, so there was basically. Uh, Code when uh, when a specific object was created, so we were trying to create an IP address pool for MetaObe. and um, because this object belongs to MetaObe, that's why the the webhook was was failing. We tried to reproduce the issue. We created a sidecar with a with a um, container, and we faced the same problem that we can't really connect to the webhook from that container. What is special about Cube API is that um, this specific container is also attached to the host network, so we thought maybe that's the clue. Uh, we tried to do that. We tried to remove that, but um, didn't really change that much. So the next step, we try to see where the traffic, uh, where where the traffic is getting lost. So we we'll, we launched the tcp dump on the same container, and we can see that when we try to run. Um, Kuru, we see the packets are coming out, but nothing is coming back. So that's why basically it's timing out. Then we did the same on the other side. So we deployed the sidecar on the meta-OB meta container, and then we launched TCP dump there. And that's where the interesting part starts, because there we not only see the incoming traffic, but we also see the replies coming back. And that is not something I often saw in my life. Like, usually traffic is lost in the middle, then you go in the back. There must be a firewall or something. But here, the traffic reached the reached the application. It sends the packet back, but the packet never arrives. So that clearly something has mass- messed up on the Kubernetes network network inside. And that's something that took us a while to brainstorm. We had a lunch break. I wasn't the only one troubleshooting that. It was uh, three other guys with much better networking knowledge than than I have. And then we we start just playing around and instead of trying to cool the web your webhook, we were trying to see what's the uh, IP addresses of the containers are, then we will try to ping it, and that's where we got another clue. So we tried to ping, I think we tried to ping um, from meta to API, and that's where ping command failed, saying that the IP address we specified is incorrect, even though it is absolutely correct IP address from the right IP address range. Then we had to dig dig really deep if something is wrong with the Kuro in this container. So that's where his Trace came to help us, and uh, we actually had to go deep down into the network uh, network functions in the kernel that Kuro um, utilized to actually send a packet. Uh, Kuro and PNDA, they they both were failing on this in, in the same same way, saying that the IP address is not correct, and that's where. That's where we started, like to see to actually the networking layer. Try to figure out the network, the network, the, how calico works on the Kubernetes cluster and, and how the, this part works. So that was quite interesting. Like we, we knew that calico would take your pod allocation range and assign a small chunk of that on the every node. And um, because it was a it was a sandbox, even though it was a sandbox, it had quite a few nodes. I think it had seven nodes together with the master. And uh, we realized that the network range that we allocated uh, wouldn't really be enough to cover all the seven nodes. That's where we thought we are on the right track. So when we start comparing the the subnets that we have for different uh, worker nodes, I think there was let me let me look in the article. I don't remember. It was twenty slash twenty six or slash twenty five? Basically, what happened was that due to the incorrect IP address allocation, some nodes. They had overlapping IP addresses, and what happened was that the IP address that the pod had for the kube kube uh, API was from the range that on the node with the web, with the trouble with the webhook container was marked as a, as a black hole. So when the container was trying to reply to the traffic that came from this IP address, everything went to the black hole. So there wasn't really a valid IP address for that container then we were trying to to go even deeper and we realized that actually um we did assign one network um range and one one mask for their for the node um, but in reality we had a different one um even i think a bigger one um created in the kubernetes so that was a it was that's how we started to to get back to the root cause how how this happened and apparently we didn't use the correct variable it usually like Comes to a very simple answer: we didn't use the correct variable in our code, and uh, cube spray instead of using slash twenty five ranges we provided in the code, it was picking up um, the default one. Uh, no, I think we were providing slash twenty four and it was picking up the default one slash twenty five uh, from an ansible values for, of the cube spray.
0: Good. Now, one question I want to to cover is: you know, why is there no shell in the Kubernetes API server container?
1: Oh, because you don't need one, you're never supposed to log in. That's due to security reasons. The best container is the, one, the container that has one binary, nothing else in it. And it's not true. It doesn't run as root.
0: And that's why, as you kind of mentioned previously, the curl command failed.
1: It wasn't even there. Like, you can't even run it from the container. You can't even log in. Like, if you try to run bash, bash is not there, Sage is not there. But then when we spin up a, a sidecar container that has bash and kuru and everything in it it still runs from the same namespace level in terms of linux and the same ip address and same networking stack so it uh, it's as close as you can uh, simulate the of what is actually happening inside the kube api campaigner.
0: for the people that are connecting from home you know and can you explain a little bit about what tc dump is and how it can help with you know curl commands that are failing
1: well the best analog like of tcp dump that more people i think familiar with would be via Shark. that's something that you've been used to analyze um, different types of network traffic the wi-fi normal tcp and it has um, it has a lot of um, protocol specific parsers that can show you easier what is inside the packet. The tcp dump is the same thing that helps you to capture network traffic on Linux. And then you can analyze it or dump it as a file and then analyze it with Wireshark. That's one of their, I think the essential troubleshooting tools when it comes to networking. Right.
0: And in, so in your case, you know, you started out with debugging a webhook and ended up tracing syscall all the way to the kernel. Did the wrong argument lead to more findings in this case?
1: Well, it's, it, it definitely helped us understand better how the, the Kubernetes networking is done and how the how the networking paths are um, formed on each node and how Kubernetes manages the, the whole networking namespace and split it between the worker nodes and the master node. Um, that was quite an interesting experience.
0: And in terms of tools or practices that it could have helped to prevent this, what are things that you've extracted as learnings
1: It's a very good question i can't really say that there was like a very obvious mistake so from one side you can't really validate every single argument of of a third-party tool such as cube spray before you use it even though be the right approach would be very time consuming on the other side you do need to know the tools that you use it's 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 very cool when you take a um Quick start tutorial. Try it and it works, and you go with that introduction. But it's all, it's all fine as long as it works. The minute it breaks, is is when the know it becomes essential. And um, we only not only got to know more about the Kubernetes network layer, but we also had to go deep, go and dig deep into their kube spray, kube uh, spray sources, and see how Ansible is structured there. And I might be mistaken, but perhaps we even submit a pull request to have this issue cover it better or something like that. So that was this part of the plan. Okay. We try to contribute to open source as much as we can, especially when we benefit and actively use it. So oh, I think it's everybody who do that. I mean,
0: it's a nice, it's a nice, you know, contribution to open up the conversation and see what other folks might uh have to offer on it and also to see if other people have gone through similar, similar challenges. You know, this is quite a journey and wouldn't say this is a typical onboarding process or experience, to say, uh, to say the least. Um, were there any steps that you decided to take after that to improve the next onboarding?
1: Well, actually, no, because our Kubernetes installation didn't really change much. We, we had to improve the part that covers how you should choose your network for your cluster better in our onboarding guide. Um, but rather than that, not much. I still believe it is a very good exercise. And uh, those issues, like when, when you do everything by instruction and it just works, you didn't really learn anything except how to follow steps. But uh, you learn most of the stuff when something is not working and then you have to troubleshoot and try and and dig deep.
0: I like that. Giving, giving people the opportunity to learn something greater than just following instructions, which is something that most of us were taught since we were since we were children. Is there any advice that you would give to folks out there who are creating or reviewing their onboarding processes?
1: Pick for feedback and review your onboarding guides with every new hire because that's, that's feedback helps to make it uh, better and that's most valuable.
0: I think it's a great point, not just in terms of onboarding, but also for overall experience as an employee. Is that your organization is listening to you and wants to know about how they can improve, as establishing you know trust and respect towards employees that they have you know insights to offer that can be beneficial for everybody. So I think it's a good way to to open up that dialogue. What was the reaction that you received to the to the article that you wrote? What did people have to say? Was was there anyone who had so experienced something similar? Did anybody disagree? What kind of feedback did you get?
1: I still feel like a little bit like the, the article doesn't really deserve that much attention. Yeah, I was glad to share our technical insight and what we've learned and provide some pieces of code. Uh, but in reality, I did have some feedbacks. So a friend of mine who now lives in the US, uh, he tagged me and said that this is one of the best things he has read for like a few years about technology and the Kubernetes and um, and troubleshooting well, maybe he just should read more interesting stuff. And my article is not that good, but I'm glad he enjoyed it anyway. That's good. I mean, if, if, one, if it helps one person, then, then you know, mission accomplished. On why we actually write an article, it, it all started as an HR initiative, to be honest. And I was very skeptical on that. Like, why would I spend my time write, writing articles? But then I realized that it's, it's paying off when we had an interview with an engineer who applied to us just because he read one of our articles. And he said, I want to work with guys like that. That wasn't like an eye opening moment for me. And that's, that's that's where I decided that we have to continue sharing share the knowledge we have. And then surprisingly, our articles, they hit very top positions on the, in Google without actually specifying the company that we work in. So I still don't understand how it works. And even though my article is published in Medium as well as in our corporate blog, the one that comes in top search when you try to search for webhook troubleshooting Kubernetes is the one from our corporate website. So that's also very beneficial for the company and for the brand improvement.
0: Absolutely. And... It's understandable that uh, in the beginning, some of these initiatives might seem questionable. About, oh, I don't really want to. take Because it takes time to write these things. You know, but A lot of people don't understand that. And a lot of what we're doing with this podcast is celebrating the efforts that have been made in order for those things to happen. Do you think that you'll be writing more articles in the future?
1: Yes, definitely. We already have planned for a few of them. The Flux 2 migration is, is one big coming because apparently it happened to be way more difficult and time consuming that we thought' it's not it's not very technical, but it's maybe help people to onboard that on um but if they have many clusters and they have many things that they use flux for um another one is coming about MongoDB, because uh, we use that a lot and we use it not in a standard way as it's a simple database. we use it as a, um as a data cache lay uh, layer. Well, we have um, a replica set in our data center. We, we write data, and then it gets replicated across the, across the globe in the in the US, Europe, and post-America. And, and um, so when people call our API, they get data from the closest point of presence. And it's not a static data that we can cache with CDN. So that's a sort of a data CDN that we had to invent. And this manga is also running in Kubernetes with local SSD that, are made in RAID, so that, I think it's a quite interesting know-how. How big how you can configure that, and what's there was there benefits you can get from this specific configuration? So I think it's a use case worth sharing with the world.
0: It's good, and and like you see, the like you said, the the value of sharing knowledge about getting those things out in the open. In terms of uh, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do so?
1: That's a very good question. LinkedIn, I guess, would be would be the one. It's very easy to find me because my surname is very unique. I don't have any people with the same surname in the world. So very just cool. type it there, and you you get me or my my, my relatives.
0: Okay, and that can I just ask? Is that is so? Your surname is is it Siberian or what's the origin?
1: The origin is Jewish. Okay. Uh yeah, they're, they're, and it all comes back to their pre Second World War times when the Jewish uh, villages. Um, back then, on the theater of Ukraine, and then when the Second World War started, my grandfather had to move his, his family to Siberia to survive, and that's how I ended up being born there.
0: Okay, all right, but yeah, like I said, you're—it's uh, definitely the first time I've seen the surname, and I will—I will let you know if, for whatever reason, I encounter somebody with—with with the same one, in which case I imagine there was probably very few degrees of separation between you and them. But very nice to meet you, Alex. I really enjoyed hearing from your perspective. I think a lot of other folks will too. Keep up the amazing work and we'll be in touch.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much, Mark. All right. Cheers.